Welcome to the Egg Makers Podcast. I'm your host, Michael James, and here I ask the question, how do makers relate to the tools and materials they use, and how does it shape their process? This podcast is part of my thesis research for Royal Rhodes University. For more information, please visit theeggmakers.com. In this episode, I was in the forge with Sean from Front Step Forge. He has a unique perspective to making and the maker community, and he articulates that like no one I've met. On top of that, he made me an incredibly beautiful hammer. To see images of the hammer or Sean's process, please visit his page on theeggmakers.com or follow the project on social media, at The Egg Makers. Have a listen. Early on, I started in jewelry as uh, I wanted to manipulate metal. And as I was starting to learn more and more about jewelry, I was fascinated by fabrication. Okay. Now, fabrication is a broad-ranging term, but generally it means the difference between constructing pieces from pieces you make versus casting as a whole piece or sure. lost wax casting or anything else. Yeah. That's a horrible generality, but it's the basics of it. And there was a bunch of things I could not do by fabrication. So I made my first hammer to make the piece I needed to make okay. the jewelry. And one of the wonderful things about being a maker is as you're traveling around, people have uh, very interesting perceptions of what you do. I remember a person very carefully feeling my work and sort of checking it against their teeth and says, is this silver plate? This looks like silver plate. You must be lying. Okay. I've always been about truth and authenticity in materials. And of course that means they don't have any perception of how much work it is to actually silver plate something versus making it out of silver to begin with. No one has ever come to me and said, is this hammer silver plated? <laughs> Even Fair if they enough. do not care about the hammer, yeah. they pick it up, it fits their hand, it's a human extension, and, and they want to look at it. Not too long ago at a show, a fella came up and bought two of my hammers. I said, oh, what are you going to make with them? He says, I'm not making anything. He said, oh, uh, are, you, are you just learning? No, I'm putting them on the wall. And I said, well, what do you mean? He says, I think they're sculpture. And I'm like, I've always thought so too. I just didn't know anyone else noticed. So what, how did that make you feel? Like when he said that? Simultaneously elated and disappointed. It was a very- he's not using it? Yeah. Okay. And a lot of my tools are very pretty. Um, it, it's part of the finish for me and how I know that that one is ready to send off into the uh, world. But to have something that's just going to hang on the wall is rather interesting. So tell me how you pick your materials. Like, what do you, how do you select your materials? So, it, in days of past, I could go to the scrapyard and go through, and by its associated duty in life, I could then pick what materials I had. Regular soft steel, hardenable material. It all depended on what its job was. If it did thousands of cycles of bouncing up and down, it was a better grade of material than okay. regular steel is. So I-beams and girders and bars tend to all be the same material. Uh-huh. And that's known for a certain level of strength, but not hardness or toughness. When it comes to making tools, I'm looking for hardness and toughness. They're different axes of the same graph. Okay. So these mechanical devices you see around here are trip hammers or power hammers. Yeah. This is from 1910. That's unbelievable. 110 years old. And, and I have 
Eight Just of them. as good as new? Yep. I have eight of them. When I have customers come in for hand tools, I'm always asking them what they want to hang on to. And the new guys always say, well, stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and are you talking about hand tools for forging? Yeah. Like blacksmith tools? Yeah, uh, carpenters and that, I want to know more about their stuff because I don't do their work. Right. And for the horseshoers that I make tools for, I don't do their work either, although most people think we do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. fair enough. So I need to know something specific about their body posture. Yeah. You know, are you standing doing mighty blows with full extension? Or are you doing wrist and elbow or wrist, elbow, shoulder, wrist, elbow, shoulder, well, knees? Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. that's all essential. So is the, is the bulk of your business tool making? Um, no, it's custom ironwork. So gates, oh, railings, chairs, tables and that. Okay. That's awesome. But the most essential element to everything though is the ability to conceive of what you need to create the tool to create the work to realize your idea so do you have to create a tool usually for each piece a new tool do you, like you have you have I used to tongs. yeah but that's why these accumulate okay so my goal is to make each of these exactly the same <coughs> so I start with a lump of metal and by isolating the different shapes of material, I can create volumes of material in each space. Okay. When you think of welding or woodworking, they're often an additive process where things are joined on. I think about growth from a volume. So this started as one piece of steel and each of the elements and shapes that go into it are created. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense with the volume size and that, I mean, obviously it's not gonna change and it's not it's that shaping versus constructing. Yeah, and I have no problem adding pieces on, but that's not the way I think about it. No, no, it's just a different way of approaching the process. The hammer is so close to your identity as a maker, it's interesting that like the origins of a jeweler, your first tool was a maker, and now, as a maker, you make hammers for other people. So, I don't know. It, it was just a really interesting uh, kind of connection there. It, it's the one thing that unites the whole story. When people resort to fire and hammers, it's for destruction. Oh, okay. Mine is a creation, a tool of creation. Fire and hammers create beautiful things. I forget that everyone thinks get a bigger hammer as a solution just to finally break the thing that's right. not giving them. Whereas for me, I call it blacksmith gentle, but it's a gentle tool. Oh, okay. I realize that's confounding to most everybody else. No, no. When it's in your hand every day, it can deliver a precise light blow or a very heavy blow. Or of course, I'll just switch to one of many of the other hammers I have that suit that job. So right below my anvil is the six pound for when I have to really motivate a piece. Of course, there's thousands of different, I know one collection where there's 5,000 hammers in it. And they're um, all different. Yeah, oh yeah. And each one, and that's not even subdivided by trade yet. The trades that use them. Yeah. Um, and every country has one that's specific to their style in each trade. 
So the pattern of it, the pattern of this one, is halfway between a Swedish and a Czech hammer. Okay. On my website, they're called Swedish. And why is it like that's just from the design of yeah. the head? And what's it used for? This is my general forging hammer. Oh, okay. This is what is in my hand every day to make any of the things that I have here. I only switch when I want a different weight or a different way of attributing the force to the work. Okay. Many, many years ago, I was volunteering down at Fort Edmonton, and one of the uh, tourists came by and says, Oh, that's not a proper blacksmith's hammer. And I said, Oh, what part of Germany are you from? <laughs> because, yeah. of course, they had a very specific image in mind. Right. I mean, most people don't, but that person obviously that knew a little did. bit about forging. Yeah. And in that area, you're not going to use something different than your master. That's what he told you to use. Right. Nowadays, things are burgeon uh, widening out where people are drawing from any culture. But I've always said, I'm a Canadian blacksmith. I'm going to take from the Vietnamese goldsmith. I'm going to take from that over there. Oh, I like that French. I like that German. I like that Swiss. I'm going to take from any culture at any epoch of time and make something cool with it. Yeah. Yeah. I think my view on it was uh, the fuel source has some affects, but it's not the. It's like any, letting any tool dominate your design. Sure. When people first get a little power hammer like this, they just make all kinds of long, skinny things. <laughs> because that's the most work, and you couldn't do it before. Right. And and you know an artist, when you're watching their progress through their career, oh, that's when you got the power hammer. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And then another 10 years after that, it's no longer, uh, it, it's a fluid use of a tool versus letting the tool show itself in the work. So that's a pro, you're, what, you're, what you're saying is it's the progress of the, of the maker. Yeah. Yeah. People always say to me, uh, well, they didn't have plasma cutters or laser uh, at that time period. And I said, yes, but if they'd had, they would have given their left nut in order to... Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah. Make it beautiful. Like, what is it that gets your your juices flowing? What's your... Like, if, if you're just sitting there, like, I have to build a... Well, uh, that's often generated by uh, some artifact that comes across. Okay. So... Laminated steels or Damascus steels, uh, there's problems with all the names, but uh, recently I've received five pounds of uh, metal powder. Okay. And I just can't wait to go do some canister work. It's where we seal it inside a vessel and turn it into a solid steel okay. with a bunch of other steels included. Okay. And then by manipulating those layers, we can make predictable patterns. Okay. So, and, and that's, that's very, very similar to... Uh I could do both. Yeah, okay. Problem is, is I can't. Um, <laughs> it's very similar to, you know, a lot of makers where there's a material or a tool or a process or something just inspires you to make something. And it's like, oh, I got to try that. And, and I mean, even... I got busted by the border guard going across into Washington State because I had my tools with me. He says, you're coming here to work. It's like, no, I'm going to a blacksmith conference. Yeah. Well, why do you need your tools? And I'm like, it's like musicians. We get together in the evenings and we jam. Our jam doesn't look like a musician's jam. And he's real hard ass. Yeah. But I showed him video of the last one I went to, and he goes, okay, have fun. Come back Monday? Yep, got to be back at work. When you look at something you've made, whether it be this hammer, whether it be something else, what do you see? 
think I'll try answering that from a judgment point first off. First thing I'm looking for is, are there any glaring, discordant features in that item? Is there an angle that I have to explore further to find out if there's a reason for it to exist? Mm -hmm. I don't make things that don't have a reason to exist. Okay. Is that line fair? And I mean it in the sense of the old English word fair. And I mean, part of, part of the reason I ask this question, and, and you can tell me if you agree or if there's a different perspective you have, when, when, when we as makers build something and we show it to somebody, they go, wow, that's a nice hammer. Wow, that's a nice chair. That's very pretty. Even back to your, your point about the guy who wanted to hang it on the wall. When we look at our items, we see something different. Everything we do is evocative. I mean, in my work, there's even the sense of smell of everything. Hot steel is different than, than lower temperature steel. Um, all the different things that go into it are creating permanent bonds in our memory. Uh, during university, I worked in long-term care. I brought my coal forge out. A fellow in the Alzheimer's unit was watching me. His family said, we haven't heard Grandpa speak in six months. And he just told us the story of the blacksmith shop in the small town in Saskatchewan where he grew up. Wow. So that triggered something. So these things are ingrained very, very deeply in us. So uh, there's the mental process of ingrainment, then there's the physical process. Yeah. Um, so. I think that I'm working from the basis of the origin of the material. So whenever I look at something, um, if I go see another woodworker's work, I have a fairly good idea of how much effort went into that. And I can appreciate it on that level, or I can appreciate it on the aesthetic. I make categories all the time. I don't think I can look at anything for any moment without doing an analysis of the route it took to get in my hands. Absolutely. And that's from that initial gathering of the materials or the conception of the need of those materials and then going and getting them. So I'm going to make an assumption on that comment, but confirm my assumption. Is that because you are a maker? Are we drawn to being makers because we're essentially somehow different? Or does being a maker make you that way? I know that when I get in a group of people that I do not know, uh, I'm viewed as an oddity. I don't know if that's personality or if I don't know. I prefer not to investigate that too finely. <laughs> Fair enough. But um, I know when I get through a group of my peers, which is very rare, yeah. the fluidity of design choices, even if uh, everyone else does different disciplines. So last year I went to this really cool conference. There were horseshoers, mm -hmm. but they were the best horseshoers. They won okay. the West Coast and the East Coast. and. There were blacksmiths, but they were the guys who, anyway. Top of their field. It was fun to be in a group where you can fluidly move within that and the thought processes. And it just comes down to it again, everything's the same. Yeah. If you're a geeky, fascinated for what you do, there's so many commonalities. And that's the thing amongst makers. Sometimes, because of the antiquity of the trade, the language is the same. Sure. So glass makers, glass blowers, they have a tempering oven. Yep. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. You know, and, the, and the terminology was surprisingly the same. That inflation piece you saw upstairs yeah. was from when I was teaching down at Red Deer College, and all okay. the instructors got together in the evening. Ah. And so said, hey, I, got to, I got to go glass blowing. Yeah. And when they came to mine, I went, oh, yeah, after I showed them my encapsulation, linear encapsulation into a form, I said, I, but I've been jealous of what you guys are doing. 
So I pulled that out of the forge, hit it with 175 PSI, and it went Cool. It went from yellow to black. Then the black skin fell off with this glowing yeah. orange-red piece underneath. And all I had to do was keep the shocked look off my face. <laughs> <laughs> That's Same. how it always no, goes. No, no, I'm, I'm good. I know how to do this stuff. <laughs> I've met the most interesting makers through this work. Yeah. So um, have you ever heard of Peter Karen? Rings your, a bell. In your line of work, he's a restoration carpenter. Okay. But that's like calling us anything one thing. Yeah. Uh, I met him because he was doing all the thatching of the historic parks across Canada. Oh. He's the federal thatching guy. Oh, interesting. So he came in, can you make me a broom vise? And I said, I saw one in Holland when I was there. What style? Is oh, I want an English maker's broom maker's vise. Well, How is that different? And we've been friends for 25 years now. Oh, cool. I make the needles he uses for thatching. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. I make his broad axes. I sharpen a lot of the stuff. The gross sharpening. Uh, he does all the fine tune up on site. Sure. Um, and then that led to my introduction to all these other places where I make tools for. Mm -hmm. But of course, that's not my goal. It's not the tool generally. It's the use of, of that shape that I could not achieve. Of course. All of these tools came about after the owner's death to me. <laughs> we are only keepers of these to yeah. pass on to the next person. Yeah. Because they last so long. If, you know. if not abused. Yeah. I yeah, regularly absolutely. see them abused. Yeah. So, um, my hand planes, my chisels, all my woodworking tools come from my grandfather. Yeah, I hope to pass down all, that's why I spend what I spend on my woodworking tools is I hope to pass them along. I don't think he spent a lot on the ones he did. I think yeah. he spent more than, as much as he could. Yeah. But then when I see uh, the very first electric hand drill, a little quarter horse, all aluminum, you know, oh, yeah, with yeah. fins. Yeah. And the finger jointed box that he made to keep it in. That is a solid reminder to me, if not now, when. Yeah. Each day that I open that, I don't need to use that drill. I got way better cordless ones than that one ever was. Yeah. But you open it, there's the workshop smell, back to the evocative yeah. nature of the material. Of course, yeah, of course. And all his work in the dovetails on a little... Yeah. You need to do that. Yeah. Thank you for listening to the Yeg Makers Podcast. If you'd like to know more about Sean, his work, or this project, please visit theyegmakers.com or follow me on social media at the Egg Makers. Stop by next time for the final episode in season one, where I chat with Kyle from Close General Leather and get to know him and his small business. I hope you can stop by.